Hi, everyone. Welcome to uh, Impact of New EB-5 Regulations on Regional Centers, Developers, and Investors webinar. We're going to get started in just a few minutes. My name is Anu Nair. I am a partner here at Clasco, and as some of you probably already know, I deal with the, all of the investor issues. And so while we're waiting for everyone to join, I want to introduce to you our other speakers. First, we have someone who needs no introduction, Ron Clasco, who is the managing partner of our firm and the founding partner of Clasco Immigration Law Partners. We also have Dan Lundy, who's a partner here at Clasco, and he manages the regional center and compliance team. And we also have Jessica Denisi, a senior attorney on our um, EB-5 compliance and regional center team as well. So with that, let's get started. So all of this actually goes back to January of 2017 when the Department of Homeland Security published a notice of proposed rulemaking to amend the EB-5 regulation. They first gave us until April 11, 2017 to provide comments, and many of us provided a lot of comments, so it took them several years to go through the entire process. And of course, there were a lot of false starts. We heard a lot of rumors about the fact that regulations were going to be published shortly or that regulations were going to be killed. Even as late as July, early July, we finally started hearing that the regulations were going to be published. And then a few days before the regulations were published, there were rumors abounding that the regulations were going to be shelved. So it's very long awaited, but finally the uh, regulations were published last week. And so today's webinar, we're going to go through some of the changes and how that's going to impact the regional centers, developers, and investors, and what you should be doing to get um, prepped for the November 21st deadline. So some of the discussions today are going to be revolving around the effective date, some changes in the regulation. So really quick, it's the targeted employment area, investment amount, priority date, 829 petition. We're going to talk about some clarification and as well as what, um, how to update offering documents and, and what can be updated. So with that, I know the most important questions a lot of regional centers and developers have is when does this go into effect? So Jessica, I'm going to turn it over to you. Can you take us through when the effective date of this new regulation is going to be? Uh, sure. Uh, so Anu, Anu just mentioned it. Uh, although we know what the new regulation is going to say, it's not going to be effective until November 21st, 2019, which is 120 days from the date of publication in the Federal Register. Um, so this means that anyone filing a 526 petition today would be under the, the, the rules in effect today. Um, and when their petition was adjudicated, that's what would be applied. Um, for anyone filing after the effective date, however, they would be under the new rule. So Jess, one of the, the most common questions that a lot of my investors were asking, especially as we started hearing rumors about the regulations, were the increase in the investment amount and the increase in the investment amount, both for a, a standard um, investment and investment in a TPA. I know there have been changes both to the investment and the TEA, but if you can take our listeners through what the changes are, um, both for the investment amount and for the targeted employment area and how that's going to be calculated. So um, 
in the regulation, USCIS or DHS has decided to keep the 50% uh, minimum differential between a targeted employment area investment and a, 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 a standard investment. So it's going to be 900,000 um, after the effective date uh, for anyone investing in a targeted employment area or rural area, and 1.8 million for the standard investment. So that's for an investment if you're not going to be adjusted downward for a TEA. Um, and the numbers, both the numbers, uh, will continue to increase in the future. They're going to tie it uh, to, to the inflation rate um, and then tie it to the amount set by Congress um, in, in 1990. Um, so it's going to continue to adjust um, every five years based on the uh, consumer price index for all urban consumers. So when I know the, when the regulations were first published or um, the proposed regulations were first published back in January 2017, we saw that the investment amount had gone up from 500 to 1.3 if it was in a TEA. So this 900,000 seems a little bit more palatable to a lot of investors, but from my understanding of the, the new regs, it's still going to be a little difficult for investors to invest this $900,000 because of the changes to um, the TEA definition. Yeah, well, uh, so the, the, I think the, the biggest change um, for, for TEAs just has to do with the, the, the process. Uh, what investors are used to doing was getting a letter, uh, or what projects were used to doing as well, getting a letter from a state agency you know, that said that wherever they were planning on investing, the project location qualified as a, as a TEA. Um, but these new rules eliminate that. So DHS is going to make all of these determinations. Uh, so, for example, if you're a direct investor, this means that with your 526 petition, instead of having a letter from a state agency, you would just be supplying the information yourself, and then you would, DHS would make the determination then um, after you filed your, your petition. Um, so, what qualifies as a TEA, they're still using, um, you know, sort of this census tract method. Um, but they've changed it from being, uh, you know, we were used to situations where you would have a project located in one census tract and then you could uh, combine a number of census tracts in order to qualify as a TEA, uh, you know, with an unemployment rate of 150% of the national average. Um, and now they've made it clear that you're only going to be allowed to use the census tract for the project or the census tract for the project if it's in more than one and then the directly adjacent census tracts. Um, the, the rules for rural are still the same, um, and then they've also made it clear that they're only going to uh, allow for specific designation for cities and towns with population of 20,000 or more outside of an MSA, um, as opposed to those inside an MSA. Um, you can also, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, Jenny. I was going to say, so projects can also um, file 924 applications, you know, exemplar applications, including the information on, on the TEA, um, and then they're saying that they will defer to the determination made there. Uh, it's not clear how useful that is, though, given the processing times for an exemplar and 
you know, how long the employment, uh, the unemployment information is going to be be valid. Um, I, I'm not I'm not sure how it's going to work if they don't get the ruling until three years after they've submitted the designation. So, um, you know, I, I was taking a look at that, and one of the things that USCIS had mentioned is that, or DHS had mentioned, is that they don't expect this new procedure to take substantially longer, which, given the fact that processing times have now increased to 45 months without this change, I'm a little skeptical. So I wonder how uh, reasonable this change is going to be, and I'm really hoping that maybe they'll transition back somehow. So moving on, um, you know, one of the, the biggest issues is 829s and how investors are going to be impacted. So, for example, we have investors who will um, join, will enter the U.S. with their family, and so everyone can file in the same 829 petition. We have investors who enter the U.S. months before their derivative family members, and we have sometimes investors who enter the U.S. Um, years after, or derivatives who enter the U.S. years after the investors enter. Every time we've had to file an A29 petition for these investors and family members, because there was no reg really on point, we constantly had to reach out to USCIS. And I think they were trying to provide some clarifications on this. And Dan, would you take us through whether or not? Fortunately, they did not. So they've clarified now that if you do not file an A29 petition with the primary beneficiary with the uh, investor that you have to now file your own. So if that's a spouse and a child, those both the spouse and the child would have to file a separate IA-29. Um, it didn't answer the question, unfortunately, about when you actually need to file a separate IA-29. So we, we know that if the IA-29 is filed before the spouse or child gets a a conditional green card, then we would file a separate 829 for that person. However, it doesn't answer the question about, you know, if the spouse or child gets a conditional green card more than 90 days after the investor, are they supposed to file separate I-829s? Do they file at the same time? Those questions we still don't have answers to. Um, we've been filing as long as they all have their green cards by the time they file the 829. We've been including them on one 829 petition. Um, so that is, uh, I guess it's uh, some some clarification, but not a lot. Um, the other difference in the uh, 829 petition is now um, location of the interview. Previously, it was usually where the NCE is located. Now it is where the NCE is located, the investor lives, or where USCIS is adjudicating um, the petition, which means, well, unfortunately, you may have to you know, fly to California or Washington or someplace else uh, to go to an interview. Um, USCIS still retains the ability to waive the interview, so it's not guaranteed that everybody's going to get an interview, even though, uh, you know, USCIS has said for a while that they intend to do interviews with everybody. I just don't realistically see that happening, you know, based on pure workflow and, and number of employees. I don't think they have the staff to do that. Um, and then the last change, which isn't really a change because they've been doing it this way for years, is you no longer have to show up at the USCIS office to get your permanent green card. Uh, they instead will mail it to you upon the approval of the 829. Right, and that to me was surprising to read because I don't have a single investor who ever had to report to a USCIS office 
to trigger the production of their green cards. It was automatically happening. So um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, we've been talking about TEAs and we're going to talk about updated to offering documents. How does this affect investors who have to file 829 petitions when the projects they may have filed with had to update their offering documents? So the regulations say that updating the offering documents to comply with securities laws uh, is not automatically going to result in the denial of anybody's petition. Um, so I, I guess let's talk about what we would possibly need to update. So clearly, if you have an, a project that is in the process of raising money and you have investors investing at $500,000 and the investment amount goes up and then you have investors who may be investing at, at $900,000 or $1.8 million, um, you clearly are going to need to update your offering documents to allow for the different level of investment. Um, these investors, you know, are they getting, you know, for their $900,000, are they getting a bigger interest, a bigger ownership interest in the NCE? I would assume so, but, you know, we ha you'd have to evaluate this on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, do those investors have any different rights than the investors who have invested at $500,000? Um, some of those investors, the project may have been a TEA under the current rules and may not be a TEA under the under the new rules. So um, these are things that we're going to have to evaluate the effect of on the capital raise and on the offering documents and see how the offering documents need to be amended. Uh, in some cases, I mean, some uh, NTEs may decide that it is easier to simply close this offering, the current offering, and start a new NCE with a new offering uh, at the higher investment amount and have two loans to the project instead of one. So there are a variety of things that we're going to have to figure out on a case-by-case -case basis with respect to the offering documents. The good thing is, as long as they still qualify, as long as there are no redemption agreements or, or anything else that would be impermissible in the offering documents, USCIS has said that they're not going to deny anybody um, for and they haven't said specifically material change, but that's what I believe that they're getting at. So um, one of the, I think, the, um, the strongest ways that uh, an investor can be protected is if they're able to keep their priority date somehow. We've seen a lot of cases where, you know, a regional center's terminated or there's going to be some material change, and especially with these long wait times for Chinese investors, Vietnamese investors, and now Indian investors, if there's any material change to the project before they get a conditional green card, it was, um, it was going to impact their ability to get a green card. So I think the regulations do protect the investors in some capacity. So can you take us through how investors can remain protected and use an earlier priority date? Yeah, this is something we've been advocating for for years. Um, one, certainly since USCIS has started terminating regional centers, and now they, their policy requires the denial of a 526 petition or revocation of a 526 petition based on their own termination of a regional center, which is in their discretion to do. Um, and, you know, of course, the number of uh, failed projects or, or troubled projects you know, there have been a number of situations where investors, through absolutely no fault of their own, find themselves in a situation where either USCIS terminates the regional center or there's a change in the business or change in the business plan um, that, you know, they still may be able to create the jobs. They still may, able, may be able to show that they've invested the full amount. But due to circumstances outside of their control, USCIS may find that there's a material change and move to either deny or revoke a 526 petition. 
So priority date retention affords some relief to investors, although I'll explain in a minute how it doesn't go far enough. Um, if you have an approved I-526 petition and you have not yet gotten a conditional green card based on that I-526 petition, you can rely on that priority date in any subsequent I-526 petition. So if I have, make an investment in a project, the business fails, um, I haven't created the jobs, and then I want to make another investment into a different project, if the original 526 was approved, I can file a new I-526 and I can keep that priority date. So if, if I'm Chinese and I have a 2014 priority date, that's a huge benefit. That means I keep my place in line even though I've filed a new 526 petition. So if I were to, to file for the first time today, I might have a 10 or 15 year wait. However, if I already filed in 2014, my petition, my priority date would be current and I can get a green card right away. So the priority date retention is a major benefit to anybody in a country with a background. Now where it fails, so one, you have to have an approved I-526 petition. Well, USCIS is taking, as Anu said, 45 months to, to adjudicate an I-526 petition. A lot can happen in that time. So you can invest and through no fault of your own, the business can fail or unfortunately there again in cases of fraud or misappropriation or USCIS terminates the regional center for nothing to do with your project. If your 526 has not already been approved, you're not protected, even though it's through absolutely no fault of your own. The other place it fails is if you've already gotten your conditional green card and the priority and the project fails or it turns out that there was fraud um, and then USCIS is gonna, wants to deny your 829, you can't use this priority date retention to cure. So you can't say, let's say they found that half your money was stolen and using something other than the project. Well, we would say, well, you can invest another $500,000 um, and create the jobs. Well, USCIS might or might not allow you to do that in an 829, but the way to, the way to protect yourself would be to file a new I-526 petition and use the old priority date because this way, all the facts, all the current facts are in the new petition. Unfortunately, that won't work. Um, USCIS just, you know, has said that it, once you get that green card, this doesn't apply to you. So it, it is helpful. However, it's only helpful to a very limited uh, subset of investors. Um, important note, if you file a new I-526 petition after November 21, you have to, you are subject to the new rules. You may be able to keep the old priority date, but you would still be subject to the new rules. So that means you're, you're filing a new uh, petition at a higher investment amount. Your project may or may not be in a TEA anymore. So just a, a quick break from talking about the EB-5 regulations. I see that people are already starting to send their questions. We are going to have an FAQ um, and actually a Q&A at the end of this webinar. So if you do have questions, please submit them and then we will try to cover as many as we can during the end of our webinar. So Dan, moving on, there were a lot of clarifications that these regulations also base. Some of them are pretty basic, you know, they're talking about U.S. Customs Service, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, um, changing uh, wherever it says entrepreneurs to investors, but there's one clarification that seems actually important. Um, so if you can take us through that. Yeah, I, and I guess this is actually reflected in the change from entrepreneur to, to investor. 
they finally realized that this is an investment program. It is a job creating program, but it's different than some of the other uh, visa types like E2, for instance, or L1, where you know the investor has to be actively engaged in the management of the business. Here, the, the job creation stems from the investment itself, not necessarily from the investor's you know, active management of the investment. So they've now clarified that as long as you uh, hold a, a class of equity in the NCE and that your equity ownership interests give you the rights normally afforded to owners of that type of equity in the jurisdiction, that's enough to show that you have a management or policy formation role. Now, what that means is if you're a limited partner and you have the normal rights given to limited partners in, that, in the state where the company was formed, you're good, that's enough. Same with an LLC or a corporation, if, you, you know, if you're a shareholder, as long as you have the rights to vote on whatever is normal in that jurisdiction, that's enough to show that you are taking a management or policy formation role. Uh, this is actually helpful clarification because we've seen some instances where USCIS adjudicators have kind of had different opinions on whether or not this matters. Um, so it is helpful to have clarification that, that just being a limited partner or a member of a limited liability company is enough. So you talked briefly about, you know, updates of authoring documents. Um, you briefly touched about this topic, but if you can take us through um, what has to be updated and how that is going to impact future petitions or investors who have already filed a 526 petition based on current offering documents that now have to be updated. Well, obviously, this is a lot of this is going to be case by case, and uh, a lot of these questions are going to be answered by Securities Council because you know it's not an immigration question. Um, what what amendments you need to make to the documents to comply with securities regulations? Obviously, it's not an immigration question, but um, you know, clearly, you're going to have people owning different percentages or in, and investing different amounts, and you have to uh, have documents that reflect that correctly. Um, there's a question. So, as long as you're continue to be eligible under, you know, as you were when you filed, and the documents don't give you any type of redemption at, at the time of adjudication. Um, you should be fine. Okay, so Ron, we haven't heard a lot from you yet, so I'm sure you do have a lot to say about these regulations. So we'd love to hear your insight on any changes on these changes. Thank you, Anu. So I, I think that uh, Jessica and Dan did a terrific job of going through what the regulations say. I'd like to kind of go beyond the four corners of the regulations to talk a little bit about big picture perspectives, uh, issues that may be raised that we may not have thought about, uh, and, uh, and, and similar concepts. So first of all, uh, when you look at the regs now, we have a quadruple whammy. We have quota problems, we have processing time delays, we have no long-term extension of the regional center program, and we have hot, very significant increased investment amounts. Uh, this certainly will have some impact on how we view the legislative process. So we now know, we, we know that we're waiting to see uh, if there'll be legislation that will uh, involve an increase, uh, a, a long-term extension of the regional center program. Uh, and uh, 
the industry, I expect, will now be looking at proposed legislation, not from the lens of what the law has been ever since 1990, but from the lens of the new regulations. And I think you'll see uh, uh, potentially more flexibility on items in proposed legislation that we may not like, but may still be better than uh, what this regulation gives us. Now, some perspectives on some of the specific issues. On investment amount, when you're talking most investors who will have to invest a million eight, I predict that the concept of actively in the process of investing will take on more importance. Uh, I think you will have significant numbers of investors who will not be able to produce a million eight immediately, assuming they're interested in investing that. Uh, and I think you will see more, more utilization of the concept of uh, investments of fold in the le well, less than the full amount, uh, but actively in the process of investing. On the TEA issue, I think it's interesting that some of the proposals uh, had talked about the fact that various rural areas can be extremely prosperous and have very low unemployment. Uh, but the regs do not make those distinctions at all. If you're in a rural area, no matter how low the unemployment, you qualify for the lower investment amount. I think you're going to see uh, 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 expert opinions on what does and does not qualify as a TEA become a very important part of the marketing effort, since there will be no state letters that investors can rely on as part of the marketing effort. On the priority date issue, uh, there's two words that we talked about that I think will become very important. Uh, and that is there's no priority date retention if there is a, quote, material error. Now, that seems innocuous, but it isn't. Uh, and we've seen that in other areas of immigration law. For example, in H-1Bs, where the Immigration Service has adopted a new policy, and has been revoking H-1B and other petitions based on their new policy, where the error, where the standard is it has to be a gross error. So there is, uh, in my mind, some concern and eventually maybe some litigation on if the Immigration Service says we're not going to grant a priority date retention because we think we made a material error in approving. It's interesting that the uh, priority date retention is only for another EB-5 petition. So we have many EB-5 investors who are filing other petitions, for example, EB-1 petitions, uh, because the waiting list is shorter. There is no priority date retention uh, for anything other than the EB-5 petition. Uh, there was some hope that uh, there'd be something in the regulation or in legislation that would allow a priority date to be transferred to someone else in the family. The regulation does not provide for that. Uh, if if uh, one of the common things that we're now seeing that's a big concern are things like terminations of regional centers, and I think Dan referenced this, um, in, the, in the termination of a regional center concept, uh, in many cases, the 526s are not yet approved, and therefore, investors who are in a project 
in a regional center that's terminated will not be able to use the priority date from their petitions uh, since their 526 is not approved. Despite the fact that it being completely within USCIS control whether or not to terminate that. Absolutely. Region. And that's a huge problem, Dan, as you point out. Um, now, interestingly, you do not lose your priority date if there's fraud uh, in, in the, if, if there's an approval of an EB-5 petition and, and there's fraud by the project, if there's, if there's fraud by the investor, then he loses the ability to retain priority date. Um, if there's an approval of petition and subsequent fraud by the project, that does not result in, uh, the, in, in changing the fact that the investor can keep the priority date. If there's a material change after a 526 approval, the result of a material change can be uh, a, a notice of intent to revoke an, an EB-5 petition. But a material change, even if it results in a revocation of the approval of the I-526 petition, still enables the investor to keep the priority date because there's no fraud by the investor and there was no material error. I think you will see an increase in mandamus complaints filed in federal court by investors to get approval of their 526 petitions in order to retain priority dates when investors are seeking to make new investments, um, they, will, they will want to make sure that they have an approval of the 526 before they make a million eight investment, for example. Um, uh, and in order to make sure that they're going to have an approval, if they're sitting in a queue that could be two, three, or four years long of waiting for a 526 approval, the importance of the approval, even if they're in a long quota waiting list, is greatly enhanced now because of priority date retention, which will give a separate reason for filing a mandamus case. On the 829s, it's hard to say if the Immigration Service meant much of a change to occur, specifically with respect to the interview requirement. Uh, I think it was Dan who mentioned that uh, it has been their, their stated policy that we're going to be interview all 829s, uh, which we haven't necessarily seen. Uh, however, the language of the reg now talks about an interview quote, if the service is not satisfied that the requirements were met. Well, that could be a, a, a change in attitude uh, because if there's no issue about whether the requirements are met, maybe they're not going to be interviewing all the 829s. We really don't know that. I've put together a list of things that you read in the preamble to the regulations or in the regulations themselves that either highlight positions of the immigration service that perhaps were not all that clear or possibly even, you know, give us some new perspectives. 
So, um, it's the service states that it believes that the termination of a regional center is a material change. Well, we've kind of thought that was their position. Uh, I expect that uh, certainly in the next year, and maybe well before that, there will be litigation challenging the issue of whether the termination of a regional center is in fact a material change. Since an investor does not invest in a regional center, but invest in a project, and the contract between the project and the regional center is arguably not a relevant issue vis-a-vis -vis the investor. The preamble states something that we've always known to be the case, but it's worth mentioning, and that is they specifically say that the money can remain in escrow until conditional residence is approved. And with quota backlogs, needless to say, that means the money could be in escrow for many years uh, without affecting the, uh, the approvability of the 526. Found it interesting in the preamble that the service said, quote, by fiscal year 2018, the number of petitions filed had fallen by more than half. Why is that interesting? because the processing times have pretty much tripled. So why is it that the number of petitions are significantly decreasing and the processing times are significantly increasing? And again, we're filing lots of mandamus cases and that is relevant for those mandamus complaints. I thought it was interesting in the preamble that the service reiterated um, its position that appeared in a policy memo that an investor need only sustain his investment for the two-year period of conditional residence. Now, I've always thought that's what the law said. Uh, the service uh, only recently came to agree that that's what the law said, but did it in a policy manual. Now the fact that it's published in the Federal Register may give some investors and some lawyers a little bit more solace in advising their clients that uh, there is no requirement to sustain the investment beyond the two years of conditional residence even though the 829 may be pending for many years beyond that. I also thought it was interesting that in the language regarding uh, the ability to appeal a denial of a 526 to the AAO, the Immigration Service used the concept there is a, a right to appeal. Now that's important because a right to appeal does not require an appeal, uh, which means that we still have the ability, if there's a 526 denial, to go directly to federal court on a declaratory judgment action. Whereas if the language of the reg required an appeal, then there wouldn't be no ability to go directly to federal court. And the last comment in this category is uh, uh, we, we have seen a huge uptick in applications for E2 treaty investor visas, especially 
from investors in countries with quota backlogs, uh, including China, Vietnam, and India. Uh, and uh, I expect that you know, when a lot of these investors have to go to a, to a third country, often Grenada, in order to do this. And investors say, well, all right, I may have to invest 150000 or 200000 in Grenada, maybe another couple hundred thousand in the U.S. And when you compare that with the 500000 for EB-5, the difference is not all that great. When you compare that with a million eight, the difference is hugely great. Uh, and I expect that that will be an incentive to investors, even investors who ultimately may do EB-5, uh, to be able to get a visa often in a couple of months that will allow them to be here um, uh, for five years. Uh, and that uh, differential between the E-2 and the EB-5 is now huge. The last thing I wanted to talk about is some strategies for developers uh, in the light of the new regulation. So a lot of this may be obvious, some may be not so. Uh, number one is uh, expediting the marketing effort is critical right now. Uh, there will be a huge push to get investors uh, signed up before November, not signed up, but filed before November 21. Uh, there will be, you know, we, we are now in the beginning of, I guess, a four month period where there will probably be uh, very, very, very large numbers of investors looking at projects, wanting to invest as soon as possible. Uh, Dan talked about the need to revise offering documents and the choice that developers will have, whether they want to work with existing documents and just amend them, whether they want to have two sets of offering documents, whether they want to have a new NCE, whether they're going to be marketing. Uh, you know, as, as we get closer to November, if we're in October, are we going to be marketing both for investors who will invest at the lower amount and investors who will invest at the higher amount? and how are we going to be dealing with the marketing and the offering documents uh, in that respect. Projects need to be looking at, or, or regional centers need to be looking at, which of their projects will still be TEAs under the new criteria. Some presumably will and some will not. There's going to be a completely different marketing strategy, I suggest, after November 21. Um, there may well be different target markets of investors. The investor who is interested in and has the ability to invest a million eight is likely to be very different than the investor who has been investing $500,000. May be completely different target markets. Also, I suggest that if an investor is investing a million eight, and if you look at processing times and or quotas, and it's going to be a long-term investment of a million eight, I think you're going to be seeing different returns that have to be offered on the investments. I think that there will be a view that, uh, you know, it, it may be even a different tail and a different dog and what's wagging what, uh, as far as uh, an investment of, of a larger amount 
where an investor is seeking a, a decent return uh, with immigration as an add-on rather than perhaps the opposite. It is interesting uh, from the developer's perspective that they should now be, may be able to raise more capital than they could before with, an with the same existing number of jobs. So for the same number of jobs, uh, they, instead of getting 500,000, they may be getting a million eight, which is almost four times, uh, I'm not a math major, but I think that's right, uh, so if, if, if their projects do in fact have legs in the market, uh, then the end result could be a lot more capital that can be raised for EB-5 with the same number of jobs. However, possibly on the reverse of that is uh, investors investing a million eight are going to have a lot more work that they will need to do, a lot more time, a lot more attorney effort in documenting the source of funds. Needless to say, it is a much greater effort to document 1,800,000 lawful source of funds than it is for 500,000. And every stage of the process from the investor through to the lawyer will probably be a much longer uh, and more difficult process. Also related to that, is the concept of currency export restrictions. So we know that you know, what, there are hurdles right now uh, in getting money out of China or Vietnam or a lot of other countries when the amount is 500,000. Overcoming the currency export hurdles at a million eight uh, could become a daunting task. So those, uh, Anu, are some of my thoughts on uh, that go beyond the four corners of, uh, of what the regulations say. Well, we do have a number of questions that are coming in. So um, the first one is going to be is, are the new regs going to impact just regional center investors or will they also impact direct investors? Well, that's an easy one. They affect everybody. Okay, and, and can 924 exemplars be used to grandfather petitions as well? So previously, no. so you can have investors in a, a project that qualify under the previous $500,000 limit and previous regulations and investors who are subject to the new regulations. Uh, theoretically, yeah. And uh, some insight on how this will impact quota backlogs. So I think it's going to take a few years, but at the obvious, you know, if demand is going to reduce because the investment amount has gone up to 1.8 million for most projects, uh, it's a fair assumption that demand is going to be uh, significantly decreased. So for a while, we're going to have fewer investors who are willing or able to make that kind of investment, and the result of that is uh, lower 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 visa usage which will then in turn reduce quotas. Now, the thing about China is China has a, because of the Chinese Student Protection Act, the China, China has a very small number of visas available to it in EB-5 every year. So the China backlog is really determined by how many visas are used by the rest of the world. So if, the, if visa demand from the rest of the world declines, then the backlog for China will decrease. 
it's probably going to take three, four years or more for the for us to see an effect based on what's already in the pipeline. Um, but at some point, that that backlog probably will drop by several years. So our next question is: If you see a live chance in 2019 for EB5 legislation that would trump the regulations? I'll take that one. Um, I I am a, a cynic or a skeptic on the issue of the legislative process at this point. And I hope I'm proven wrong because I think legislation now is more important than ever for the uh, success of the EB-5 program. Uh, my perspective is based on number one, it is incredibly difficult to get any legislation through Washington between the House and the Senate and signed by the President. Number two is if the legislation happens to have the word immigration in it, it is that much more difficult to get anything through Congress. So there may be a united EB-5 industry uh, behind a united legislative proposal. There may be more motivation than ever on the part of the EB-5 industry for, uh, for legislative changes. I'm hopeful that uh, there could be legislation, but I am not optimistic. I do expect there'll be another uh, extension, uh, probably a short-term extension of the regional center program, but as far as comprehensive EB-5 legislation that deals with all of the compliance issues and the investment amounts and the plethora of issues that exist, I'm not optimistic that it will happen. So, um one listener wants to know if there's any indication of how project fraud will be determined. And specifically, is it fraud in the 924 petition and thus determined by USCIS, or are they referring to securities fraud and so an allegation by the SEC? Well, fraud is typically uncovered um, certainly by uh, the SEC. If the SEC is involved, they let USCIS know that they're investigating. Um, by the time there's an SEC complaint, uh, you know, we've seen USCIS start to move to deny petitions before there's an uh, adjudication. Um, certainly by the time there's a final judgment, uh, you know, in the SEC matter, that's conclusive for USCIS. Um, unfortunately, sometimes the, the final judgments are consent judgments that neither admit nor deny the allegations, and USCIS will still, you know, deem them proven conclusively, uh, even though nobody's actually admitted anything. Um, public record searches, lawsuits, uh, you know, every time USCIS adjudicates something to do with the project, they tend to Google it. Uh, if, it if they Google it and there's no record of it being built at the location, um, or, you know, they find the name, but it's associated with something else, you know, these can lead to, to fraud indicators and then investigation and later fraud finding. Um, whistleblowers, usually, probably in most cases, there's somebody who either tips off USCIS or, or the SEC that there's something going on. Uh, so, you know, fraud finding, you know, the fraud, the way they find the fraud and, and you know, the way it works its way back into investor denials um, varies each time. There are a lot of different ways. So the, I mean, Fraud at the 924 stage, I mean, would 
result in the 924 denial, but we're, what we're really concerned about is the investors, right? So the investor petitions are, are what we're concerned about being denied. So our next question is um, just regarding the processing time. So in increased processing time to 45 months or sure thing, is this going to impact petitions filed after November 2019 or before November 2019? So I can take this one. That's just the standard processing time that's published on the USCIS website right now. It has nothing to do with the regulations. So if you are filing right now, I would tell my clients, look, I'm generally seeing in about two, two and a half years, we're seeing adjudication, but the government has posted a processing time of 45 months. And so therefore they limit how often we can contact them for updates. And if we do ask them for updates at 24 months, they refer to the processing timeline. And of course, there's going to be some um, effect on mandamuses as well. Yeah, I think uh, the, the, one of the main reasons that uh, processing times on March 31st were 21.5 months, and then the next month they up, went up to 45 months, was because there are so many mandamus cases being filed in federal court uh, by us and other law firms. Uh, and I think the Immigration Service's goal was to try to immunize itself from, uh, from mandamus cases by simply saying, well, don't bother us for four years, uh, even if we normally approve within you know, two, two and a half years, we don't want you filing a mandamus case for four or five years. Uh, I don't expect that that will be successful as a federal court strategy, and I expect we still will be filing mandamus cases for cases under 45 months, but uh, you know, that is now the published processing time. Yeah, in, in fiscal year 2018, which ended on September 30, 2018, uh, USCIS processed more than 14,000 I-526 petitions. Um, I think intakes for that year were something around 6,000. So they're, they've, in the past two fiscal years, exceeded um, their adjudications have exceeded their case files. So I don't understand why the processing time is going up. The processing time in the backlog should, in fact, be going down by the numbers. But Well, in fact, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Anu, but I think the number of 526s processed in 2019, first six months of 2019, is something like, what, 10 or 20% yeah. of what it was last year. Yeah, so we did an analysis of the last few years, and I think it was now in our firm less than 10% um, of what we were seeing in the last few years since 2016. So whatever's going on with USCIS, the processing times are definitely getting longer, but USCIS has definitely slowed down processing of 526s as well. So we have a number of questions and I think people are very, very hopeful. Um, so I'm gonna combine a, a few of these questions together. What is the likelihood that come November 21st, nothing happens, that the regulations are going to be put on the shelf or they're going to be blocked by lawsuits? Uh, I know that there are, there's some discussion of filing lawsuits on various procedural issues involving the regulations. Um, all I can say is uh, I, I, I I'm not sure that I am optimistic that any of the litigation will be successful. 
Uh, and um, I think we should all be planning on the assumption that the regulations will, in fact, take effect on November 21 and be happily surprised if some court blocks the regulations from taking effect. So um, another question is if the regional center is now in a targeted employment area, but after November 21st is no longer in targeted employment area, is this going to impact clients who filed their 526 before November 21st? Not directly. Um, if you file before November 21st, you're subject to the current rules, not the new rules, and that includes the TEA. Um, however, if the project was in a TEA beforehand and is no longer in a TEA and hasn't raised all its money, uh, there is a question of, you know, what the developer is going to do about it. Is there going to be a shortage of cash? So that's something developers need to start looking at is, you know, what's, what's the contingency plan? How am I going to finish my raise um, so that the project is not underfunded? Or, or in the alternative, what, what other sources of funds am I going to replace if I can't raise all the EB-5 money? Although I think luckily because we have four months and there's going to be a lot of investment activity between now and November 21, uh, that may not be that much of an issue, but it is a possible issue. So another question is how are the source of funds impacted? Um, and I can take this one. You know, a lot of the, uh, the proposed regulation, the proposed legislation talked about limiting the sources of funds, who can gift money, where the funds can come from, what documentation you have to provide. These regulations don't really talk about any of that. So source of funds is going to be pretty similar. In policy, we are seeing USCIS getting a little bit stricter. And so you de definitely want to make sure that you are still up to date on adjudications policy and how strict USCIS is getting, but there's no changes in the regulations. Uh, so another question we have is, um, Hold on just one second. The regs speak to the NCE as qualifying as a TEA. Um, how come they're only focusing on the NCE and not JCE? That's, uh, I mean, so in the regional center context where you get to create indirect, account indirect jobs, um, the policy manual has said that if, the, if you're using indirect jobs and there's a different JCE than NCE, um, the JCEs must be principally be doing business in a TEA. So I don't know why they didn't uh, add that into the regulations. It's probably just an oversight. I'm trying to understand this question, so give me one second. <laughs> Okay, there's one question where I'm going to just parse out the question and just um, make kind of clarification. So this question is regarding priority dates and that the new regs provide for priority date retention once a conditional green card is issued. So I want to confirm that you cannot retain your priority date if you've already received a conditional green card based on that original 526 approval. So if you got your 526 approved, you waited for your priority date to become current, 
you entered the U.S. as a conditional permanent resident, then subsequently something happened and your A29 is getting denied, you cannot go back and use that 526 priority date for a subsequent 526 filing. You can only use that priority date if you've never um, basically filed for your green card against that priority date. Uh, so we have one question about if there's going to be any changes to forms. The regulations don't impact forms, um, right? You can continue to use the same form. Ron, Ron just reminded me I may have been overbroad before when I said that E2s need to, you know, be actively, uh, the investor needs to actively manage the enterprise. Uh, the investor needs to develop and direct. I didn't mean that he needs to, act, he or she needs to actually be involved in the day-to-day -day management as long as he is or she is developing and directing uh, either through, you know, another manager or uh, still taking some active role in, in the enterprise, but it doesn't have to be day-to-day management. Okay, with the new minimum amounts, I already know what your answer is going to be, Dan, because we both always say that we're immigration attorneys only. With the new minimum amounts, does the investor have to show a greater income in order to qualify as an EB-5 investor? Well, they clearly need to show more money, a more lawful source of more money. You know. Yes, but your second, your, your question regarding, um, what, I think this is regarding whether or not you're an accredited investor. Double check with securities attorneys. Oh, I, uh, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Okay, so the regs talk about the TEAs operating in multiple census tracts. So if a single NCE has multiple projects in multiple tracts, um, does the whole offering qualify as a TEA? The NCE has to be principally doing business in a TEA, which, of course, USCIS hasn't entirely de defined. Um, so as long as most of the investment, most of the job creation, most of the activity is in a TEA, if you have five locations and one of them is not a TEA, it's probably still going to qualify. But it, it's, we'd have to take a look at that on a case-by-case -case basis. So do you have any insight on how the new regulations are going to impact escrow process requirements? Are escrows still going to be utilized? Um, considering the date of the investment is the date the investment area must qualify as TPA. So it's always been either the date of investment or the date of filing of the I-526 petition. So if you are put your money in escrow, um, typically we would say that the date of you need to determine the TEA for is the date of filing. But the regulations haven't made any change to, to escrow or anything else. So I think we're going to start wrapping up now, um, and I'm going to turn it over to all three of you. If you have any suggestions, recommendations of what people should be doing over the next four months. Well, I, the regulations still don't fill in all the blanks, so there is still potential for advocacy at the USCIS level. Not that they've been paying much attention uh, to us lately, but you know, we can still advocate for, while well, yes, you need an I-526 approval to keep a priority date, we can certainly advocate for, well, if you guys are going to terminate a regional center, um, maybe you should approve the I-526 first, you know, and then terminate the regional center so at least we get to file it, you know, we have a chance to file a new 526 and retain the priority date. Um, Ron, any other areas you think that there are 
potential advocacy, either at USCIS or elsewhere? No, I, I think I think now, as I mentioned, <clears throat> it's more important than ever that we uh, use all of our uh, effort and resources to uh, to get Congress to act. Uh, I think a long-term extension of the EB-5 program is uh, is more important than ever. Uh, I think that if there is congressional legislation, there's a good chance that the investment amounts may be less than certainly less than the million eight. Uh, and uh, so I think if you know now is the time to do everything we can to contact our representatives in Washington and emphasize the importance of legislation to uh, to save or enhance the EB-5 program. So the only thing I will say for any investors or potential investors who are about to listen, having dealt with multiple deadlines since September 2015, I will be pleading with any potential investors to not wait until November to start the process. Um, you know, sleeping in the office is not something that a lot of our attorneys like to do. So if you are interested in starting, definitely start sooner than later. Uh, Dan had published a blog earlier in July talking about you know, not doing skeletal filings. We still want to put forth the best petition possible. And for that, you want someone who's going to take their time to review everything. So it's better to start the process now than to wait until November. Because as we get closer to the deadline and everyone is trying to file, uh, you're going to find more and more um, cases where they're going to do skeletal filings, which we do not like, or that the attorney is simply not going to have a chance to thoroughly review all of your documentation. Yeah, and unlike some of the prior you know, times when we thought that the investment amount was going to go up, this time it's really happening. <laughs> I think we're all pretty uh, in agreement that, that this is not a drill this time. It, it would take some extraordinary uh, intervention for the regulation not to go into effect on November 21st, and we really you know, are not that hopeful that something is going to happen between now and then that stops it. So this is the real one, guys. It, investment amount is going up. So thank you to Justin and Ron, and thank you everyone listening for attending today. We hope you found this information useful. If you do have any additional questions, please reach out to any of the presenters today. I know we didn't get a chance to go through all of the questions that were asked, and we'll definitely try our best to answer those. All of our contact information is up on the screen, and a recording of the webinar is also going to be available in emails to everyone who has registered. We also regularly publish blogs, articles, and news alerts to our email list and on social media. So please sign up for our emails at classicallaw.com, and you can follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter as well. Thank you, everyone.